The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and I'm joined by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest today is uh, Jeff Keitlinger, General Manager of the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. It'll always be MWD to me, but other people call it the Met, which to me sounds like an opera. But anyway, uh, Jeff, thank you very much for uh, being with us today. Happy to be here, John. And yeah, a lot of some people call us Mother Met, but I like MWD as well. Um, so I wanted to ask about, since we haven't covered water in a long time, I mean, the pandemic has sort of subsumed every other news story, and, but, but water was huge and the Delta project was big. The last I saw was that it had been downsized to one tunnel and the price tag uh, was under 16 billion, like 15.7 or 15.9, somewhere in there. Where is the Delta project now and is it going forward? It's uh, taken a bit of a backseat, of course, like everything, like you mentioned, to the pandemic and everything else going on. Uh, what happened was we had pretty much gone through environmental permitting for a two-tunnel, 9,000 cubic feet per second size project that was at around $17 billion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was uh, shrunk by Governor Newsom and uh, his very first state of the state he decided he wanted something smaller, a single tunnel project. Uh, they went through the scoping on that. That took about a year. And what they settled on was a single tunnel, 6,000 cubic feet per second project. So roughly about two thirds of the Jerry Brown proposal with a single tunnel. And now that is going through the environmental review process and should probably get completed with that analysis in 2020 three timeframe, something in that timeframe, 2024, 2023. Uh, is the money there? Uh, we may get federal infrastructure money, and that seems, depending on who you believe, I mean, I saw the LAO talked about $27 billion coming in, and I saw other figures of $150 billion, but is there enough to squirrel away $15.7 billion and get it for this project? There probably is. Uh, the contractors themselves would be paying for a big, for most of it. And if to the extent there was any state and federal block money available, uh, that would obviously help. So the, the money is probably there in the sense that this is a, this, this is the kind of project that would last 75 years. So it's a multi-generational project that has long-term value to the state of California, much like the original state water project. And so when you think of it that way, uh, the actual size of the money in the scheme of things is is actually pretty manageable. Is, is the goal to move more northern water southward, or is the goal to protect the delta environmentally, or is it some combination of the two? It's a combination of the two. It's not really about more, but it's um, managing it more efficiently. Uh, what we're seeing with climate change is our snowpack in California is shrinking every year. And instead, we're getting rain instead of snow. And what that means is when we used to have three, four months of a nice long spring melt to manage our water supply, we now have about two weeks of rain. And as we shift more and more to, from snow to rain, uh, we're, we're going to have to find ways to capture the water and move it really fast. 
And what that means is like large tunnels and large reservoirs. And that's, that, that's sort of our climate change adaptation we're going to have to shift to as a state. And part of that is how to get that water out of the delta and into the reservoirs. And that's going to be a, some sort of combination of large tunnel and pumping system. If we just rely on the pumps at the south of the delta uh, and try to manage that water really fast, uh, the, the system doesn't have the capacity for it and it's going to do a lot of environmental damage. That's are, where the, a bypass like this comes into play. Are we already in a drought? We are. Uh, California, you know, is in a extreme drought this year in 2021. Uh, we have one of the lower snowpacks we've seen. This is now looking a little like 2014-15, uh, which um, you'll remember was the, when we analyzed it, looking at tree ring data, we thought 2014-15 was the worst drought in 1,500 years in California. It certainly was the the lowest snowpack in recorded history. I think that must have been the year where there were the snow survey people from DWR were up in the Bayeco Summit, and they put the pole in the ground, and the ground was dirt. It was brown. There wasn't any snow. Yeah. It. it doesn't get worse than that, you know? Right. This uh, year, this year um, a little more snowpack than we had in 2014-15, but it's about the same amount of water supply because last year was a drought as well, and so there's pretty much nothing in the reservoirs. Yeah. To, to tell you kind of how the state water project works is every year you get an allocation. So if you get a full water supply, you get a hundred percent allocation. Typically we average about 60 to 70% allocations. 2014-15, uh, we had a 5% allocation. That means the entire state water project only delivered 5% of its supply to the entire state. Uh, we This year we have 2021 is the another 5% allocation. That's the lowest amount of water we've ever received on the state water project. And uh, we're tying uh, the worst ever, the bottom, the bottom this year. Is, now that's separate from the Central Valley project, the deliveries they make, is that correct? That's correct. They also go through their own sort of priority allocation system. Yeah. And this year they're averaging essentially to old deliveries about 5% as well. So both projects are, are really hit hard and you see a you're going to see tremendous impacts in the Central Valley and to farming uh, this year. So, Jeff, I know this might far afield of what you do uh, at MWP, but maybe you would uh, or MWD rather. Uh, maybe you'll have some insights. So that 2014-2015 year, we actually had some limitations that came from the state on water usage. Do you know? Are there going to be any conservation measures uh, put in place? Have you have you been privy to any conversations about that? There has been conversations about it. I don't think you're going to see it like 2014-15. And the reason was that, was that was the bottom of three straight years of drought. And so the system was already pretty impacted. Uh, we actually had a really wet year in 2018-19. And most urban agencies like the Bay Area and, and you know, Metropolitan were able to sock away a tremendous amount of water that year. And you know, thank goodness we had that big wet year. Uh, because we're now actually in, in very good shape. All our reservoirs are completely full throughout Southern California. So we're, we're, we're pretty well prepared for this year. So we're not going to see the extreme restrictions and, you know, the, the governor put in place uh, that you did in 14-15. But, you know, stay tuned. If it stays like this in 2022 and 2023, uh, you're going to see a repeat of that. Got it. Are there any other sources of water? I mean, can we sneak over to Nevada and grab some of theirs or Arizona? Or Wait, did, I don't think Nevada has any water, John. Sneak <laughs> isn't the right word, maybe. <laughs> so 
So a couple of things, you know, Metropolitan gets its water supply uh, from two places. So, so Southern California, you know, six county area that Metropolitan serves, 19 million people. We, we get our water from two places, uh, Northern California from the Sierra Mountains and the Colorado River from the Rocky Mountains. And so Metropolitan taps into the Colorado River and it's roughly about, um, you know, it's, it's about half of Metropolitan supply. Well, in a year like this, where Northern California is extremely dry, we're going to be heavily relying on our Colorado River supply throughout Southern California. And it, it's really been a, going to be a, a you know, our, a, our insurance policy, so to speak. And so Metropolitan, as part of our preparations, we've been partnering with Nevada and Arizona to store water in Lake Mead under a new arrangement with the, with the federal government. And we actually have a lot of water in Lake Mead. And we're going to be tapping into that this year to make sure Southern California doesn't go dry. Was there a, uh, an agreement a few years ago? I recall reading about California not taking as much water as it had before because of high growth area, you know, Las Vegas, Nevada, there's high growth there too as well. Is that agreement in effect? Yes, we, we put together what we call the drought contingency plan because the Colorado River is in drought and it has, it's really been impacted by climate change. And so we have a complex series of cuts that the states are going to take as the drought deepens. And, you know, some, a large part of the burden falls on Arizona and then some more on Nevada. And California, by virtue of kind of senior water rights, didn't have any cuts. And so for the first time ever, uh, Metropolitan agreed to take on a series of cuts on behalf of California and in exchange, we wanted the ability to bank water in Lake Mead and withdraw it when we go into drought in California. And so we have complex arrangements with all the states and the federal government we put into place and, and Mexico. And it took a series of years of negotiations. And we finally agreed to that in 2019 and put that into place. And you're going to see us rely on it this year to pull water out of Lake Mead. Do you think there'd be more restrictions? You mentioned it might not be as bad right now as it might be in the future in terms of water use restrictions and that kind of thing. Would it be stricter down south than Northern California? Would it be relatively uniform? Or how would that play out, do you think? You know, it, when, typically in the past, it, typically the restrictions were localized depending on how the impacts were felt. And that was one of the things that um, Governor you know, Jerry Brown did with the State Water Board uh, working with Felicia Marcus when she was chair of the state water board yeah. to actually say, we're going to have statewide restrictions. And you saw some communities that really are fairly immune to drought, you know, in certain parts of Northern California and stuff, et cetera, complain about that and say, why are we being, why do we have restrictions on us when we don't really have the same impacts as say, maybe, you know, uh, Southern California or San Diego or Los Angeles. And um, the governor really wanted to say, we want uniform restrictions so all Californians understand this is a statewide drought. And, and that was unique. Uh, we'd never done that before. I thought it was very effective. It, it made for very powerful messaging. And, uh, and we'll see if that's you know, going to be the new normal as we go into droughts. But it was the first time I'd ever seen that in my career. Typically, it's left to locals to come up with their own restrictions. You know, up north in the northern part of the state, nobody really likes Southern California. It doesn't matter really what the issue is. It could be construction, infrastructure, water. You just really don't like Los Angeles. And over the years, of course, there have been 
you know, attempts to divide up the state. And I remember one time it went, it kept getting a little bit further. First, it was at Sacramento North. And then, yeah, they didn't like Sacramento either. And they certainly didn't like San Francisco. So it kept going up north and north and further north. Until it was basically the little quadrant up in Siskiyou County or something. Um, the state that, of Lincoln. <laughs> is, that, yeah, no. right. is that feeling, um, uh, as far as water goes, You is that one of the big political algorithms you have to face in dealing with Northern California want to hang on to their water and not let you have it? Well, uh, yes, and it, it always has been the case. I, I like to think it's probably, we're not maybe as divided as we were in 1982 in the peripheral canal vote. And I, you know, I'm, and I'm sure most of Northern California celebrated the Dodgers win last year, but <laughs> I, you know, I, I do think um, it, it is just one of those classic California political algorithms, as you put it, that there is a it's not so much, a, I don't think anymore, there used to be sort of an urban-rural divide, you know, agriculture. I, it really is sort of north-south. And it, and it's kind of peculiar in a way because it doesn't, frankly, make a lot of logical sense. Um, but but it's there. And, and it's it's a little religious in its nature. And and it's just it's something that always has to be worked through on every water issue. There is a north-south issue. Enough about water. Tim wanted to ask you about music. <laughs> Well, and before we get there, I also want to ask you, uh, now you had announced your retirement, I think last year, and then you announced that you were putting off your retirement. So where, where are you on that? What, what's next for Jeff Keitlinger? Yeah, so I, I had announced that I was planning on uh, retiring at the end of 2020. And I thought that was going to be a good logical step down and have a new general manager in place and, uh, to start off 2021. And what happened was um, something I didn't wasn't in my prediction was a worldwide pandemic. And that kind of slowed things down. And it also didn't seem really appropriate to bring in a new general manager in the middle of a lockdown to take over a workforce that's all teleworking. And so working with uh, the chairwoman of our board, I said, why don't we see how the pandemic progresses and move the timeline out of it? And, you know, given that you know, we, we seem to be coming towards the end of the pandemic and, you know, seemingly good news and vaccinations. Uh, right now, the recruitment is up well underway for the new GM, and I expect to be, turn it over at the end of June. So, so sort of the end of the fiscal year, and we expect to have a new GM uh, starting here in early July. Oh, so it's coming up. How's yeah. this going uh, for you? you know, personally, and for your staff in the pandemic, is everybody Zooming like we are right now, uh, working from home? Is this total all virtual, you know, interaction? Here? Well, mostly, uh, you know, so there's, you know, MWDs, you know, we have the, the requirement to actually deliver wet water every day. So we have five major pumping plants and five major treatment plants and a water quality lab that samples water on a daily basis. That work has to take place in person. And that's roughly about a third of the workforce. Uh, the other two thirds is sort of in the planning, engineering, design type work, uh, you know, legal, et cetera. That two thirds is all working from home. And so that, that's roughly the split. The, you know, a third of our staff, you know, boots on the ground, masks on their face, PPE, um, and they're delivering water every day. And then two thirds of the workforce is Zooming and, and doing it teleworking. And it's looking like we'll be bringing people in probably second half of 2021 back into the work, back into the buildings. Do you think people want to come back in? 
I mean, a lot so of people think- really like working from home and, you know, doing the commute and going to the office and all that stuff, to, you know. So interesting you brought that up. Uh, about one month into the pandemic, you know, we sent, you know, things started on a, I remember, you know, NBA shutting down on Wednesday, the spring training shutting down on Thursday, things like this taking place. On Friday, I sent a memo. This was March 13th of last year. I sent a memo on Friday saying, everyone stay home Monday, except for those people we notify that have to come in. And we sent an email to those people that had to you know, run the water treatment and pumping plants. And then about one month into it, it, it became pretty clear this is not a, a two or three month shutdown. This was going to be significant and lasting. So I asked at 90 days a complete detailed report of everywhere we were falling behind and what we were going to do about it. And the report that came back to me was that we're actually maintaining at 100% at everything. And I was pretty stunned. I, I didn't think we could transition that fast that well. And, and it's what we've seen everywhere. You know, we've all transitioned to this Zoom world pretty quickly. And uh, so I started calling around. I just said, you know what, I'm going to give every single employee of my 1800 employees, a 10 minute phone call to thank them for what they're doing. Wow. That's a lot of phone calls. It's been a lot of phone calls. I have spent a couple hours a day for the last nine months calling every single employee and checking in on them and seeing how they're doing, working from home or working on the site. And I'd say about two thirds of the, of them don't want to come back. Maybe three fourths. They wow. want to, they like this world. The, I mean, they want to come back in sort of a hybrid fashion, maybe coming back one to two days a week. Yeah. But they love the lack of commuting. You know, LA, you all know, you know, we got horror stories of transportation and commutes and traffic. And they, you know, they really like the flexibility. They, but they sort of, but they miss people too. So everyone wants some sort of hybrid, flexible approach. Well, I do have a suggestion. So maybe you could just have them all move to Northern California. Then we won't have to get that water down there for you anymore. It'll just be right here. This is like a win-win. You know who came up with that idea originally? Pat Brown. <laughs> and Pat, Pat Brown, Governor Pat Brown said, there's a re- someone asked him once why he was the father of the State Water Project. And he said, everyone was going to move to Northern California and we were going to be look like LA. And he said, I thought it was better to build the state project and move the water to them. Keep them down there. Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, well, John alluded to my other uh, question that I wanted to ask you. So, uh, you know, I follow you on Twitter, John and I both do, and your Twitter feed is fairly evenly split between water issues and then music commentary and you are clearly an obsessive music fan and not only that you're an obsessive sort of a punk rock and new wave music fan which maybe people who just know you through the water world wouldn't expect and i have to ask were you the guy at your senior prom with blue hair (laughs) uh actually kind of yeah so in the late 70s i grew up in the late 70s and um I actually, you know, went to Berkeley in Northern California and I, um, and I, I spent a year in England uh, going abroad and, you know, right when all the punk rock stuff was taking place in the late seventies. And, and I, uh, I used to hard to believe now when looking at my hair, I used to have jet black hair naturally before it all went white. And I remember trying to dye it blue and green and colors like that. And it took hours of bleaching to get it to oh, a rock. I think you have to bleach it first before you can do any of the colors. So I, I tried that. And uh, the, the, 
the lightest I could get my hair was sort of a yellowy orange, and then I could dye it sort of blue and green. And I, I went through a phase doing that stuff. And pretty embarrassing. And was, the good news is that was before digital cameras and telephones. So, uh, so you have uh, I have a very good friend of mine who is now a, a fire, a very respectable fire chief, and uh, I have seen the family photos of him as a high school, uh, maybe immediately out of high school with his parents, and his hair is indescribable, multicolored, sort of dreadlocks, but sort of not, uh, and uh, you know, torn pants, torn things, and he's got a big smile on his face. He looks happy as a well-adjusted kid, but. Uh, I'm sure that his colleagues at the fire department would not recognize him in his, uh, you know, <laughs> Sears photo with his parents when he was 18 years old. Yeah. So, um, so you were, so you're a music guy. So, so how did that happen? I mean, you just, you said you went to England or Berkeley or like, uh, yeah. you, you got there, outside the mainstream. There was great music back then. And there, you know, a lot of good bands and it was just sort of a fun period. Um, all these bands coming over to the U S like, um, the clash and people like that. And what was really nice is um, it was fairly easy to go see bands back then. And LA was a scene of a lot of great explosion of great music in the late seventies with X and all sorts of, you know, spinoffs from X and, you know, the blasters and all these bands and you could go see them at clubs for just a couple dollars. And so, and they would play in people's garages. So it was a really nice music period that you could go do and, and tap into and, and, uh, you know, I still have all my records from back then, you know, it was quite, I still have my record collection and still like to listen to them. So I saw that you were recently enthusiastic about, I uh, think, going to see the Black Keys. So you're still there and still kind of following music that's maybe a little outside the mainstream, although I guess the Black Keys are kind of mainstream now. They're pretty mainstream. But uh, yeah, no, I still I miss going to shows. That's one of the things that the pandemic um, did. I you know, I, I like shows that start earlier nowadays, and I don't like staying up till two in the morning to go to a show. But, you know, I really enjoy the fact that uh, you could go to music shows still. And, and it's actually sort of made sort of a comeback more recently that I don't think bands make money off records that much anymore. And so they, they do a lot more live touring. And, and, and you've seen um, a proliferation of small clubs before the pandemic hit, you know, in places like Pasadena that would have small nightclubs that would play decent bands that would come and play. So I, I was kind of enjoying this sort of a regeneration of a, of a club music scene. I'm a big music fan and myself and I play, you know, I have bands that play played, I should say. And, and this is the longest I've gone without seeing live music since I was yeah. probably 18 years old. Uh, wow. So, and then I haven't performed. I have, my band has not played live in over a year, which is, the by far the longest stretch for me since 1993 you know i've been playing wow. every week or every few months and last year right before the same we had set up an entire tour of europe we were supposed to be touring europe and playing festivals uh through may and we waited and then it became clear that that wasn't going to happen and so everything got shut down and we still don't know when we're going to play live again you know who knows how, how do you listen to music uh, Tim, do you, I mean, is it like Spotify or Pandora or do you download? You know, that that's actually uh, leads me into a question for Jeff. But uh, to answer that question, um, I still listen to records, really. And I have a lot of CDs as well that I bought over the years because there's so many reissues that came out and I, I tend to like older music. Um, and, I, you know, I'm not on Spotify. I mean, I have it, but I don't ever use it. Uh, and I do tend to look at things, ironically enough, on YouTube, um, just out of habit and 
it's very, very, very rare that I try to find a song that I want to hear that I can't find on YouTube. And what I don't often do is just put something on and then randomly let it play, you know, a la the old radio model. I usually kind of know what I want to listen to. And, and so I'll, I'll make playlists on YouTube or whatever, sometimes Pandora occasionally. But speaking of Pandora, one of the things I noticed is that uh, during, during the drought, saw that uh, MWD had created playlists of songs on Pandora that you could listen to the world exactly the length oh, yeah, of a shower. Yeah. And so did you, were, was that a brainchild, a Jeff Keitlinger brainchild? I had to wonder when I saw that. I pushed for it. And, um, but my staff are the ones that came up and put it all together, but I, I was, you know, they, they knew about my music interest and, and I said, well, okay, we got a lot of snappy, like, you know, like an Elvis Costello song, two minutes, 50 seconds. There you go. You know, there you go. Absolutely. Perfect. So here's something I, I found uh, this is far afield from the water world, but uh, I'm an obsessive music history guy. And so I read an incredible book about the independent music producers. And, and, you know, I have a lot of 78s even, you know, which for, for those of you oh, wow. who are younger, 78 RPM was the first records that were commercially viable were at 78 RPMs versus an LP, which is 33 RPMs. And you could get about, three, maybe a little more than three minutes of music on a side of a 78 RPM. So when you're listening to big band stuff, uh, you know, Benny Goodman or, uh, you know, hit records from the 40s and 30s, they're probably three minutes, three minutes, 10 seconds long or something like that. And that was the limitations of that format. So even though live, they might play a song that was you know, like Benny Goodman, Sing, 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 could stretch out for probably 15 minutes. But when he recorded the record, it had to be three minutes and 10 seconds. But then a weird thing happened. They, they went to 45s, which actually could go a little bit longer, 45 RPMs. But in the mid 50s and early 60s, you would see songs get down to like two minutes. And there were a lot of hit records from the late 50s, early 60s that were two minutes or less, which is really weird because the format could accommodate uh, hmm. another minute of music. And I really wondered what that was. And so reading this book about the independent music producers, I discovered that the reason that pops like hit songs got really short in that period was driven by jukeboxes. And at that point, there were 400,000 active working jukeboxes in the United States. And that was the way that a lot of people experienced music. And as a jukebox operator, you quickly figured out that the shorter a record was, the more records you could play in a certain yeah. period. And you the more played, nickels. Yeah, exactly. So you'd put in your nickel for a play or a quarter for 10 plays or whatever. So their goal was to get you, everything is commercial. Everything is yep. always making money. So a two minute song, if you had, you know, if you played three two minute songs, that was only six minutes. So you'd make 15 cents in six minutes versus a three minute song would be nine minutes. So you'd make 15 cents. So they actually were more likely to put your record in a jukebox, the shorter it was. So it's really funny that here's this thing that I assumed had some sort of artistic value and <laughs> that we really recognized that you wanted to write your song, have your chorus, right. have your thing and get out. No, it was all about selling records, you know, selling, selling plays on the jukebox. And then jukebox is sort of, went by the wayside more or less as a real commercial market uh, by the mid sixties. And then all of a sudden you see songs get longer and longer. And I think the animals uh, house rising sun was the first single that was over four minutes yeah. unheard of, you know, um, but our first hit single, I should say that was over four minutes, but anyway, it's all weird uh, mm -hmm. the way this stuff happens. And, you know, now you have, 
you know, with streaming and everything is nobody even buys a record. Somebody just told me that I think Alice Cooper currently has a quote unquote hit record and it sold 14,000 copies. And, yeah. you know, in, in the old days, 14,000 copies were, is what a good local band could probably sell in their tri-state area on their tour. Uh, so things have changed, but it's all about streaming. So that's, I guess, maybe the last question we can ask is, have you been following the Little Nas X saga and his new song where he's uh, riding a stripper pole to Satan? Do you have any, any thoughts about that as a person <laughs> who once was a fan of deeply transgressive music? I, I just think it's a you know it's sort of fun to see all these different kinds of music styles and when he had that uh, old town you know record okay. that, you know and I'm sitting there going who who would have thought you know here is going to be a openly gay you know African American doing a country western song and playing at um, at country western music and having it be accepted and I thought that was pretty fun and exciting and different and. Um, and so I, I think all this stuff is sort of fun as to see, you know, to see the evolution of styles change and mix and match. And <laughs> Were you ever? No, I, I have zero musical talent whatsoever. Um, I just enjoy. I'm purely a listener and an appreciator. Well, you know, it's amazing how many people will meet uh, that they used to play in bands when they were in high school or, you know, later. And it's hard to envision them. I'm thinking of a couple of insurance executives that I covered for years up here. And then he showed me, a, I think it was on YouTube, a, a video of him from 1979. And he's great. He's playing lead guitar and he's got long hair and the whole thing. You know, it's just um, hard to hard to reconcile yeah. that with the way he looks down the way he was before. You know? Is that Steve Suchel, John? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. yeah and I, think, and I've, I remember you'll appreciate this, Jeff. He was in a full on new wave band that made records and was, you know, yeah. got a little bit of a buzz for a moment in the early 80s. <laughs> Lenny Goldberg was another one. Uh, you know, the Tax Reform Association and always associated him with, you know, lobbying the legislature and tax issues and all that heavy duty stuff. And then it turns out he's lead guitarist in a couple bands. <laughs> That's how he relaxes, I guess, you know, so. And I think one of the strangest uh, is, is uh, Dan Walters, you know, the longtime columnist. Uh, sure. Yeah, longest time columnist we have on, on California politics. His brother ran the Zazu, I think it was the Zazu yeah. Pitts Memorial Orchestra for Memorial Orchestra. forever, forever. And was like a mainstay up here in Northern California all through the eighties. And yeah. I think the nineties, maybe oh, they were the great. Before. I saw them on New, New Year's Eve. They were playing, I think at the Mark Hopkins or the St. Francis or something. God, they were great. They were really huh. great. So no, I had no idea. Yeah. I had no idea. I, I've seen Dan Walters talk him many times. I've had lunch with him and yeah, but I, I never knew that story. The tree branched in separate directions. Yeah, there. So, <laughs> Jeff Kiling, thank you so much. Thanks for talking with us today. Uh, this is what you call an eclectic conversation, water and rock music. Doesn't get better than that. So Jeff, thank you so much. Uh, Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, John. Bye, Jeff. It's John Howard, Thanks. and we'll see you next time around. Bye, Thanks, guys. John. Thanks, Tim. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.